Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with John Taylor. John is the author of Maximize Your Multiple, the business owner's guide to institutional money deal, a book that helps entrepreneurs build and sell their companies for maximum value. John has over 20 years of mergers and acquisitions, strategic advisory, and business valuation experience, and has successfully advised clients across the broad range of industries, including government services, aerospace and defense, business services, technology, consumer and industrial products, metals and mining. He has closed over $2 billion in aggregate transaction value in his career. Welcome to the show, John, man. Thank you for, having, uh, for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier. You know my first question is going to be the origin story, man. You were born. Now you're on my show. Kind of fill in the gap at how you <laughs> got, got, got here today. Sure. So I, I got out of school. I, I went to the Wharton School and graduated in the late 90s as an undergrad, and um, which was an interesting time. You, you had referenced Excite, right? So, so that was right during the whole dot-com craze, you know, 99, 2000. And, you know, my first um, job out of school, I, I studied finance and was just interested in Wall Street. You know, I remember watching Wall Street as a kid and just thought, you know, that, that was a really interesting movie. I think Oliver Stone did meant men- to be... Uh, like a movie, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people in my generation just got turned on to Wall Street, right? So, um, you know, I read Barbarians in the Gate in college and some other deal books like that. And um, so started off doing uh, middle market investment banking, um, you know, a lot, a lot working with some tech companies early on and, um, you know, enjoyed it in a lot of ways. But, you know, at the same time, there's all these kind of doc, you know, a lot of people were heading into the dot coms and, um you know, I, I did spend, you know, I, I did try kind of the internet thing out for a little while, but came back to banking and, you know, had, had um, you know, worked with a couple of different firms over my career, f- founded my own practice um, seven or eight years ago. And, you know, re- you know, haven't really looked back since just been um, doing middle market mergers and acquisitions, typically companies, you know, 10 to 20 million plus in sales. And then uh, we have a very active business valuation practice as well. That's awesome. You said uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, Wall Street movie, right? The funny thing was, is uh, when I decided to go into m and I actually sent a message to I, I called a friend of mine to tell him because we used to watch that when I was in the military. Him and I would watch that show like, over and over again. And we, didn't, we were trying to figure out if we were going to be stock traders or whatever. Right. And uh, so when I decided to go to this, I, I tried to get a hold of him. I couldn't get a hold of him. But his wife answered and she's like, you want me to send him a, you give him a message? I said, yeah, I'll tell him blue, uh, blue horse you loves Anaconda uh, Steel or whatever. You know? And she's like, what? I said, just write it down and tell him that. And so he texts me later, like, what in the world's going on? He's like, I moved to M&A. And he's like, oh, man. You know, so it was just one of like, this is something 30 years later. Right. So uh, that that movie is an uh, iconic, uh, you know, uh, probably catalyst for a lot of people that eventually get into this space. Now, you're in the heart of tech. You know, you're right there in Palo Alto. We were talking about a little bit before the show. I lived there in that area for for uh, nine or 10 years. And uh, so you're surrounded by tech company and stuff. But we were talking you do valuations of everything from the local hair salons all the way up to the big tech and everything in between. Right. 
That's right. So, yeah, our valuation practice, we, we work with companies of all sizes, you know, on it could be anything from divorce litigation to, you know, foreign NA is very common for, for stock option valuation for businesses and partnership buyouts, you know, different types of litigation. I mean, we've been an expert witness in court. So that there's lots of reasons why people do business valuation. But, you know, M&A is, is the biggest part of what we do and what we enjoy doing the most. Um, and so representing middle market businesses and sell side. I mean, we've you know done some work in tech, but um, you know, also some industrial construction type businesses as well. So it's interesting is uh, valuation is a brilliant, like uh, almost a lead generation for your M&A side, right? Somebody comes to you and they're like, well, what is my company worth? And you help them with that. And then it leads to, well, what are you planning on doing? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the way some of our, yeah, sell side conversations begin is people come to us for evaluation and we you know, turn it into a sell side opportunity. That's awesome. So I'm a business owner. I come to you and I'm like, I, I think I, I might be ready to sell this and stuff. Could you help me work with what is my business worth? Now, we've had a lot of conversations on the show about like how to maximize value and like get your book straight and all that. But what does the process look like to start an evaluation process or actually not evaluation, but valuation? Sure. So, so typically we start with a questionnaire and understand what the business does, what industry they're in, uh, you know, getting the financial information. We have an information request list that we send, which is really looking at the last three to five years income statement, balance sheet, um, understanding who owners are, what the ownership structure looks like, um, understanding what does the customer base look like? Are there things like customer concentration, any significant risk factors? So we, we have a, a short questionnaire we run through with, with folks at the beginning just to evaluate a company and understand yeah, what, what, it, what its value might be, what, what the different options, if they're looking to sell it, what, what's kind of their um, strategic alternative. So obviously, I mean, l- larger businesses have um, more opportunities for selling than smaller, but you know, a lot of small businesses are, are very difficult to sell because they're, you know, in a lot of cases, they're just too small to be interesting to a buyer, right? I mean, if, you know, if, if someone's going to spend a lot of time doing diligence and audits, you know, mucking around with a, you know, a, a, a tiny, you know, mom and pop type business, it, you know, oftentimes isn't a good use of their time. So they're looking for, you know, significant opportunities. Companies doing, you know, I, I'd say, you know, at least, you know, 1 million plus in profits. These, I mean, usually, you know, f- you know, fast often. Right. So uh, <clears throat> I'm coming to you and I, I you know, I, I, I'm going to play a scenario because I kind of know, I know, I know you get this because I get it as a, from a buy side, um, you know, conversation is, you know, a, a, a seller or a business owner, they come to you and they're like, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to retire. I want to sell my business. I need X. Is there a strategic side of how you like, how do you get them to X? You know, so I, you know, I need, I talked to my financial advisor, my CPA he says in order for me to retire and live the life I'm currently living, I need another $2 million. Right. Sure. And you and I both know that what I need and what the business is worth are not connected right. in any sense of the matter, but in their mind it's connected, right? They're looking at yes. their business going, I make 5 million a year, you know, revenue. So yeah, I probably can sell this for 2 million and that's not connected either. So Walk through this, the conversation that happens for valuation and like with, with the seller as far as like, do you have to set some expectations or is there what's the conversation look like? Yeah, that's an important part of the process when we whenever we evaluate a business for a sale. I mean, we have we, we do our we get the financial statements. 
we, we go through a questionnaire, we get information on the customer base, the market they're in, and then we do our own evaluation of the business of what we think is worth, what we think uh, bids might come in if we were to market the, the company actively. And then we present that to the potential seller and say, hey, look, we think the value is going to be in this range, right? So, uh, you know, oftentimes it's a multiple of EBITDA, um, you know, maybe a multiple of sales. And, um, you know, and obviously the, the, there's there's could be significant variance between like a high-end range versus a low-end range. And you know, everyone likes to be optimistic and say, hey, we, you know, it's possible that we could get you, you know, you know, 20 times EBITDA for your business or, you know, you know, 20 times sales or something like that. And, and that's what everyone wants to hear. But we, we want to try to give them a realistic picture of where, you know, 80 to 90 percent of bids are going to come in because it, it doesn't do anyone, you know, much good if we're just blowing smoke and making a feel like, hey, you, you know, your business is, uh, you know, more valuable than, than the market might perceive it to be. I mean, it's, it's an honest conversation and just say, hey, this is where we think most people are going to bid. And realistically, th- these are what your options are going to look like. I, and we say with the caveat, like, hey, we, we, we'd love to get you more and we'll try to get you more. Um, so if, if we can't come to some, you know, agreement there on a reasonable value, if someone's like, well, hey, I want 2x what you're saying it's worth it, we might say, hey, look, we're, we might not be the right people to represent you. I mean, we can certainly try to get you that number, but um, we don't think that that's, um, you know, that may not be the, the compensation we get is about a result. It's because it's typically a, a percentage of the deal. And so, you know, we don't want to spend our time marketing a deal if we don't think, you know, if we can't see eye to eye on what the value is and, and, and eventually get to a, a price, right? You know, you know, think about a homeowner who, you know, hasn't maintained their home in, you know, 30 plus years and they got outdated kitchens and bathrooms, but they want, you know, premium price to sell, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, if you're a realtor, you, you'd probably say, hey, I'm going to decline that listing because it's just, you know, we're not going to get to a deal, right? So that's, uh, you know, we try to take a similar approach. You know, one of the things I find is uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not an advisor in the sense that uh, I'm trying to, like, you know, help them sell it to somebody else. But, um, you know, when, when I, when I'm working with a seller, the first thing I, you know, I say when they say, well, I need two million, my response is always going to be, let's see how we can get you there. And a lot of times that how we're going to get you there is we've got to increase your profitability, your, your EBITDA. And there's a couple ways to do that. You can become a lot more, if, if you got the revenue, you can become a lot more efficient, right? And drive that number up. Or if you don't, we could probably go acquire something similar to yours and drive it up pretty quickly and sell it all as one. And uh, so there's some conversations I have with business owners who they think they need X and they're just, there's just no way their business in its current state will get there. Uh, so I, and I do take a, a piece of that. Do you guys do any type of strategic advisory? Like, well, we'll help you acquire something to help you get there. Or you stay inside of the uh, like, you know, sell side advising. Sure. Yeah, no, we, we definitely tell people like, look, if, if there's a certain number you're targeting, you need to grow the business for another year or two or three years or whatever the plan is. And maybe the best way to do that is to look at an acquisition, or maybe there's ways to increase the profitability that they haven't looked at, right. Or um, haven't considered um, or, you know, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you meet business owners all the time and, you know, they're not, you know, a lot of them aren't really optimizing everything they're doing. Right. Um, You know, they, you know, maybe they're, you know, they're wasting money on things that, that aren't a good investment um, or, or they need to really focus on growth, growing the top line, um, you know, maybe investing in, in the right kinds of people that can help them get there. So we, you know, we do give that, that sort of advice as well. 
one of the things I you know work with some of these guys is is, is at finding kind of the red flags. So uh, are there red flags outside of the financials, outside of the the um, that that customer concentration, three years financial? Like, what are some of the questions you ask a seller when they come talk to you that are outside of numbers? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, there there could be risk factors, compliance issues, legal issues, right? Uh, regulatory issues. You know, every you know, there are some industries that are more regulated than others. There's environmental, right? So, if you're a manufacturing business, have you have you had a phase one done or phase two? Um, you know, are there any toxins in the soil? Like, you know, we we've worked with companies. They had to have a phase one, phase two environmental, you know, drill holes through the, the floor of the plant, you know, wells to kind of test um, toxin levels and so forth. Um, we, we had a client that, you know, one of their factories was built on a former coal ash plant, right? So, I mean, you know, you know, so, so th- those are big risks. You know, like a, a law can, can certainly be an issue, um, you know, employment issues, you know, hiring, you know, do you have a management team in place that can run it? I mean, that, that's an important consideration. Um, if, particularly, I mean, you referenced the private equity world, right? I mean, most of those guys aren't set up to, to drop in a management team and run it. I mean, they might, they may have operating partners that can um, help round out a management team, but really they're looking to the company to, to have that has a good leadership team already in place. So um, th- those are the intangibles for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, do they have, you know, how do they differentiate themselves in the marketplace? Do, do they have a good sales message? Um, how effectively are they marketing? Uh, are they using digital marketing if that's effective, right? Um, you know, their, their whole approach um, to, to product development. Do they have intellectual property? I mean, all, you know, all those things uh, certainly come into play. Um, you know, product concentration. Are they very focused on a single, you know, is it like a company, right? I mean, we, you know, we, we had a customer that... Um, they made were it was a certain type of truck cover. And so it was like a one product type business, right? They weren't very diversified. So they had to look at diversifying their, their product offering uh, so they can provide, you know, more, have more of a value added type offering to customers beyond what um, kind of a single product model. So, so yeah, I mean, all those, you know, all those things come into play. So let's go jump back right into that valuation. You mentioned intellectual property and I haven't had anybody on the show that talked about how do you, add intellectual property into the evaluation equation. And I kind of suspect you're uniquely set up to talk about it because you are surrounded by tech and innovation. So you, you've, and you, you know, with your defense contracting stuff that you had in your uh, bio and stuff, you, you've, you've got to come across this. So is it swag, right? The scientific wild ass guess, or is there a method to, you know, valuing uh, intellectual property as an asset of a company? Sure. So, so we have we have done valuations specifically for a company's intellectual property, and and a lot of times that's uh, can almost be like a theoretical exercise where you look at multi payment on what it be type of intellectual property, right? Software code, which um, maybe they're not monetizing, but they it, it could provide cost savings, right? Maybe they need to hire they don't need as many people, so it provides a cost savings to the company by automating certain processes, right? So so those are so even if the software or the intellectual property sold, but does it does it provide some other type of benefit or advantage to the business in terms of cost or or how how they the company's marketed? Um, but but yeah, I mean you know we come into this question quite often sometimes when you know a company says, well, hey, my business might be worth X, but my, my brand is very you know we have an awesome brand or we we've got uh, we've got all these patents on products that 
you know, sometimes haven't even been developed, right, or, or marketed. Um, so that, you know, and we're, when you're talking about selling intellectual property assets like that, I mean, it, it can be somewhat challenging because different when you're looking at valuing intellectual property from, um, you know, maybe if you're looking to do it for, you know, tax compliance or, or some, you know, uh, some theoretical purpose. But, but really, if you're asking a buyer to pay for real intellectual property, I mean, it, it, it should show up in the financials. So if you have real intellectual property that's valuable, you, you should either you should have some cost advantage or quality advantage. Um, you should have better margins than your competitor, or you know you, you should be penetrating the market faster because your intellectual property makes your product superior. So so the, the it really should show up in the numbers, and it has to certainly having the intellectual property secured. I mean patents, right? I mean typically it's a, a seventeen year life, um, so the life of the patent matters um, oftentimes. But um, yeah, I mean the, the the reality is the the intellectual property it should show up in the numbers, and you know I mean a lot of companies they you know, their, um, their proprietary, you know, their secret sauce, it hasn't been patented, right? It's, it's just, it's kind of a trade secret, but things they know, or they call it, you know, black magic or whatever. And, you know, it's how they go to business and it's not, um, it's not necessarily, you know, written out or explicit anywhere, but it's, it's a method in in the way they do business that's valuable. And and it shows up in the, in the results, in the financial results. So you've been in this industry, uh, 20 plus years, according to your bio, right? What's your favorite deal? Like, uh, and, and, and maybe, you know, think of, think kind of back through the, the, the deals you've done and been involved with, with your current firm and other ones. Do you have a favorite and some lessons learned from that one? Yeah. Every, every deal provides I mean, it, it's, you know, uh, every deal provides its own unique set of challenges. So, so we, you know, I learned something from all of them. Right. And, and, and a lot of those are, you know, it, it's, um, Oftentimes it's interpersonal, right? It's the interpersonal dynamics of the seller and understanding what their needs are and really listening to them. Um, you know, just recently we were, you know, kind of deadlocked on, on an offer with a business and um, kind of going back and forth with a, a letter of intent and, you know, it looked like, hey, this deal might not come together because the um, the sellers wanted to exclude a certain uh, software asset from the sale. The buyer wanted to include it. And they were, you know, you know, kind of fighting over to some degree whether whether or not it should be included, what the value was, and you know that this was um, more of an early stage type software asset, so it was difficult to value. So, um, yeah, I mean, every every deal presents its own unique set of challenges, and and it's in, you know, I had a, a client um, gentleman well into his seventies. I mean, you know, he he had essentially retired from the company. That it was a a business in the industrial manufacturing space and he had moved to Florida, but was still somewhat involved with the company. And, um, you know, I, we had this, you know, we, we got a pretty good offer for business. And one thing he had, I'm understanding uh, what's called a, a network capital target. Cause, cause typically when you sell a business, it's the, the, the valuation of the company, it's, it's on a debt-free cash-free basis. Right. So, so what that means, if you're the seller, you get to keep any cash that's in the business, but you got to pay off any debt. And an amount of what's called working capital, which is your the company's inventory, accounts receivables, and payables, which stays in the business. I mean that that that's kind of you know your your inventory and accounts receivables is basically it's asset that that the owner has made in the time to build up an inventory balance and accounts receivable balance, which eventually gets turned into cash. But also they build up a payables and usually so. Typically, you, you take the 
non-cash current assets, you deduct the non-debt current liabilities. That gives you the working capital. And you typically look at a 12-month average for that number. So whatever the, the trailing 12-month average is, is usually set as a target, which is included in letter of intent. So when you close, if you're if you're above that working capital target, the uh, seller gets a credit. And if he's below it, it's a debit. But, you know, out of business owners, we've never dealt with this concept before. And some of them really struggle. I mean, to spend, you know, one case I had to spend probably over 40 hours educating him on why working capital has to be included, what it means, how you calculate it, why we're using a, an average. So a lot of it is just seller education. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, clients we have are, are first-time business sellers and, you know, they're not super, you know, while they know their industry well, they're they're experts in their industry and they, they know everything about it in terms of, but actually doing a deal is something they're very new to. And so they're, they're learning a lot of these terms for the first time. And uh, so, yeah, we, we often have to spend a lot of time educating them and helping them understand why, why an offer is written a certain way. Yeah. What, yeah. What working capital is, um, how long it takes to close, what, what's going to be diligence, right? So there's all these different reference, you know, kind of technical references we have to get them up to speed on. Yeah, I've actually run into a case where uh, I had an LOI out. I thought it, everything was going good. And uh, the owner, at some point after he signed the LOI, come back because you do realize I'm taking all the inventory and all the cash as part of my retirement. And I was like, what are you doing with the inventory? <laughs> well, I've got a buddy that owns something down in Texas and uh, we're going to, He's going to buy it for me at, at my cost. And, you know, I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not interested in an empty warehouse with a bunch of employees, you know, in orders to fill. I want to be able to, you know, the inventory, I need to be able to ship things as, as things going out. But he thought he was getting a bonus. He thought he was going to pull over a million worth of you know cash out of the business and uh, and, you know, half a million dollars worth of inventory, which he, at his wholesale cost and, uh, you know, and my price was okay if if you got all that. I was like, no, that, that's not how this works. So I, I can see that. Um, you know, a lot of these. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was going to say too. I mean, but I mean that, that that's why it's so important to set a working capital target in the letter of intent because you don't want to set up a situation where you know because once the LOI signed, the seller's basically incentivized. I'm going to draw down all my. I'm going to give all my uh, customers a discount to pay me early, and I'm going to sell off this inventory and try to you know, basically raid the balance sheet and then um, run up my payables. So when, when my, when the buyer takes possession, there's, there's almost no inventory or accounts receivable and my payables have run way up. And so you, you don't want to create a, a situation where you're incentivizing either side to, to, um, to, to play games with the balance sheet, right? Cause, cause if you're the buyer, I mean, yeah, you're, you'd want the uh, inventory and a just increase and the, the payables to go down. But um you know, to be fair, you set a target, and then if you're above or you know if you're above or below it, there's a, a debit credit at closing. Let's talk a little bit about look, we've got the valuation done, and the owner is still in. And I'm sure you get this a lot of times. It's either a forced sale, meaning it's a health issue, or a uh, divorce. We talked about that a little bit earlier, um, but in some cases, it's just a lifestyle choice. They're they're thinking and they're, it's time to sell. Um, do you? I run into some cases where we've got pretty close to the finish line and the owner decides to change his mind because he doesn't know what he's going to do next. Do you, do you work with any type of um, like transition specialist or anything that helps the owner figure out what they're going to do next so they don't pull that knee-jerk reaction towards the end of the transaction? 
Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And it's funny because I, I talk to business owners every day. I mean, as you know, as you can imagine, and um, I go to trade shows sometimes and I, I meet business owners and it, 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 I always, uh, I always kind of chuckle sometimes because I'll, I'll meet some of these guys that are, you know, well past retirement age, you know, well into their 60s, 70s, you know, even 80s in some cases. And I say, hey, are you, you know, would you consider, are you considering a potential sale of the company? Is that something you'd like to do or would, would consider? And a lot of, you know, a lot of them are just like, no, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm, I'm not looking to do that. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. And you'd think like, hey, like this guy's ripe retirement age. But, um, you know, it's like a lot, you know, the way a lot of these entrepreneurs are wired, they they don't even, they're not even thinking about it, right? They just want to keep doing what they're doing. And this this is their purpose. So, so yeah, I mean, certainly um, working with a business owner, I mean, obviously, it's it really comes up to educating them and talking to them up front, making sure that you know, hey, this is what it's going to take to sell the company. We're talking, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. It's a long process. It's not something that you can't, you know, hire us to sell your company on Monday and expect to be closed on Friday. Um, it's, it's, it's a big investment of, of time and effort. Um, so we want to make sure that they're committed to the process. I mean, yeah, I've, I mean, like you, I've had instances where the, the owner second guesses himself or, you know, decides he, you know, he, he doesn't want to sell in the end. And, you know, that's unfortunate, but yeah, I mean, at the end, you know, it is, it is the, the, the seller's decision, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, our, our contract doesn't obligate them to sell if they don't want to sell. So, um, but yeah, I think the key there is just remind them like, Hey, we're working to bring you the best deal possible. And whatever deal we, we bring you to recommend it, it's going to be a good deal. That's going to, within the, the valuation range we discussed and on the terms we discussed. And so we say, Hey, look, we, you know, we're going to bring you the kind of deal you're looking for. And, and, you know, if we do that, you know, we want to move forward and, and get something done because that's what we're all here for. You know, the other side of it is, is that um, a lot of times when you're working through all the stuff at night that needs to happen to make a business really valuable, um, you run into what I refer to, I jokingly call it the, uh, freshly decaled car scenario, right? You ever decide you want to sell your car and you go out and you get it clean and detailed and serviced so you have the highest trade-in value. And then you're driving over to the, the, the car dealership to trade it in. You're thinking, I don't know. This is, I don't know why I'm selling this. It's a pretty nice car, right? <laughs> Same thing happens to some of these business owners when the, the, they go through the process of, they bring in a general manager so they're not having to put in so many hours. They put in systems and processes mm-hmm. so somebody else can run it. They clean up their financials and get things tuned up a little bit so that it's more profitable, all in the uh, all with the pretense that they were going to sell it. But when they get down to that other end of it, they go, "Okay, well, I I only have to spend four hours a week here now. Why would I sell this? Do you run into do you run into any of that, too, where you, you put in the work to help them make it very marketable? But now it's also something that's a lot easier to manage and they, they may or may not go. Yeah, it, it does happen for sure. I mean, or, or people that even second guess themselves and and sometimes we have to spend more time with, with them. You know, like the deal we did with this gentleman that was, I think he was almost 80 years old. He, he was kind of question sell. I, I said, hey, look, this, you know, you sell the company, you kind of ensure its future to some degree, right? I mean, like you have to think about what, what happens if, if you were to pass away, what, what happens to the business? And, you know, obviously putting the, the kind of systems in place you need having a management team in place. But um, yeah, if it look, if you want the best thing for the company, uh, sometimes the best thing for that is for you to step away both from, you know, management and an ownership role and let someone own the asset who can really maximize it and continue to grow it and do, do the best thing for the employees. I mean, this, this one gentleman who was, 
you know, was uh, in his late seventies. He, he wasn't investing in sales and marketing. Wasn't, you know, you know, his approach, like, you know, no debt, um, you know, didn't, didn't invest much in, in sales and marketing or other things to, to grow the company, but, um, you know, ha- had a great business overall. So I think the company was in a position where it really needed a different kind of ownership to, to run it and, and continue to grow it and develop it. So I think if, if you're an owner that can recognize like, Hey, maybe the company's at a point where it needs to grow past me in my, um, financial or risk tolerance or, or ability to grow it. Um, you know, I think right, thinking about what's what's best for the employees and the business um, can, can maybe help them get over that. Because, yeah, I understand the emotional attachment. I mean, you spend, you know, a lot of our clients have spent, you know, 30, 40 plus years building a company and it's, it's hard to walk away from, right? There's there's that emotional attachment. It's 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 uh, it's been an investment they understand. It provides them steady capital. Like, hey, why, why, why would I sell this, right? Um, so, um uh, but there's well, look, there are lifestyle factors to consider for sure. So, what would you consider as the most important um, piece of advice you give to an owner who's thinking about selling his business? He's looking, considering an exit. Important thing I th- I think is is the the amount of uh, to, to sell a company. Oftentimes, um, in in the the amount of information that has to be provided, right, um, and, and getting the business ready to stand up to that level of, of, of scrutiny and to be able to answer questions and generate reports, right? I mean, having good software systems, information systems that can generate financial statements and lists of customers and, um, you know, projects and, you know, you know sales by product and, and profit margin and things like that. So um, having good IT systems, having the right kind of people in place, you know, um, it's great when a company has a, a chief financial officer. I understand there's a lot of small businesses that maybe don't don't have the budget to afford one. But if but you know if you're a company doing 20 million plus in sales with with decent profitability, I mean, having a CFO c- can really help you position the company and, and help you get the systems in in place you need to to operate it to provide efficiency and then also you know during a sale process just being able to generate reports and information quickly. Uh, you know, even for yourself, you know, to help you operate the business. So, yes, yeah, systems, you know, things written down is is important, right? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses start out with a one-man band who's doing four or five different jobs. And, you know, he's been kind of running it by the seat of his pants for years. And But um, stepping away from some of those roles, hiring professionals to do those same jobs, um, writing down procedures, right, explicit uh, you know, manuals on how to do things and how the business is run. Having good documentation is 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 very important, and and it makes a big difference in a sale process when you have good documentation versus, you know, someone asks you for, um, you know, your list of customers or you know sales by product or something like that. And it takes you two weeks to pull together. It's you know it, it it can really hamper a sales process. I mean, you have to be able to generate information quickly and answer questions. So that's something we always recommend. You know, I can tell you from the uh, buyer's perspective, and I and I work not just myself, but I work with a lot of other buyers. For everything we have to wait for, your price, your what we think the value of your company kind of goes down a little bit, right? Because you're just if you're creating it on the fly and you haven't tracked it closely over the last three years, we have to kind of assume there's some fudge factor in there, right? You didn't have it readily there. You dug it out. You were in a hurry to dig it out. And it's kind of like the guy that waits for the last minute and, and creates a mileage log for his, you know, uh, kind of 
tries to go back and create a mileage log for his uh, tax deduction on the use of his car. Right. right? Mm-hmm. They got six. They got six different pins, and they're trying to create it. And they know it's pretty close to accurate, but it's not not a hundred percent. That's kind of you know, our perspective, when, when I ask you for something as a buyer and it takes you three weeks to get it to me, I was like, he's having to go out and create that. Right. And if it's something like your profit and loss statement, you know, broken up quarterly over the last three years or your, you know, you know, or just financial stuff that induces a little fear in your, into your buyers. So one of the favorite things I always like to ask is what do you believe is a common myth inside of the, this profession, inside of M&A, inside of, uh, inside of advisory services. What do you believe is a common myth in your profession that you'd like to debunk right here and now? I mean, a common myth, uh, yeah, good question. I mean, there, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, I mean, one thing I think that, um, I mean, there's this whole idea. I think I went to business school and we talk about like the strategic buyer is, is the best buyer because he can afford to pay a premium and, and so forth. And you know, and I think a lot of times that that's that can be true, but in, in some instances, I mean, a lot of private equity buyers are, are um, just as aggressive as strategic buyers when it comes to buying businesses, and their valuations can be in the same range as, as a strategic, right? And so, some people don't want to consider a financial buyer because maybe they feel like you know private equity has a bad reputation, or a private equity firm bought a friend's company and they you know they don't they don't want to deal with 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 private equity. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, I think that, that that's a fairly common one. I mean, so, some business owners, um, you know, they feel like they can sell the company themselves, right? And it's, you know, you know, it's, it's like, um, I mean, I, I, I recently sold a home and, uh, you know, I guess I could have done for sale by owner, right? But, uh, you know, I've, there, there's, um, you know, I, I understand there's a cost to hiring a certain professional. I mean, you look at what, what kind of commissions get paid to realtors these days. And it seems, you know, kind of ridiculous with Zillow and the internet and, and you're still paying, you know, you know, five, 5% or more to, to sell a home, but it's, um, you know, there's value in having a professional that, that's done it many, many times help, help you with, in a transaction and trying to do everything yourself, I think is, is a mistake, right? I mean, you don't, you wouldn't like, you know, write all your own legal documents oftentimes, right? Um, you know, hiring a professional who, who can, you know, save you a lot of time and money in the end. It's interesting. I've had sellers ask me like, should I have somebody on my side? And I was like, look, I, I'm negotiating this to be the buyer. I'm going to negotiate this to be in my best interest. I'm not out to harm you or anything, but I promise you, if you have stuff that I don't recognize or don't understand, I hire in people and I bring in advisors. They look it over and give me advice. I would recommend you do the same thing, right? You're not going to understand this. And, and quite frankly, I may or may not be equipped to be the guy to teach you, you know, you know, if I was selling my, I just turn it around. If I were selling my company to you, I wouldn't ask you to teach me what I'm presenting to you. It's just a bad idea. Right. And I don't have any malintent towards these guys, but just being as as straightforward and as honest as like, I'm going to bring an advisor in if there's something I don't understand. And yeah, you probably should do the same thing. So, right. Yep. And in the same thing, I've, I've got a background in real estate investing and, you know, to this day, I still, you know, maybe because of time requirements, but if I decide to sell something, unless I have somebody lined up that wants to buy it, like I have some properties right now that are uh, owner financed out, I've got somebody that might want to buy the notes. I'll probably do most of that myself. And then when I'm ready, when it's done, because I know the guy, he knows me, but I'm still going to take it to, I know how to do the paperwork too. I can do it right I, here and bring a notary I, over to the office and have him notarize it. I know how to do it, but just for his well-being and his, you know, comfort zone. 
I'll pay the money and go to a closing company and transfer the title and everything through a closing company because the, you know, they can insure the transaction. They can oversee it. They, you know, catch anything I might've missed. It's a peace of mind for both parties. And, uh, so I would say if you, if you've got, unless you've got a mom and pop shop that you, you're just selling to a friend, a family, a relative or, or something like that, it's, it's absolutely a good idea to bring in a, uh, an advisor to take a look at what you got and pay them. You know, um, I say that, and I don't, I don't fish through biz by sell or anything listed for businesses because there's just so many out there that, uh, let's just say most, not most, what's the word I'm looking for? Not all brokers are even, are, are, are equal. All right. There's right. a lot of stuff listed, listed out there. And, uh, like we were talking about valuations earlier. There's a lot of people out there that, uh, I think there's the reason a lot of businesses don't sell off a of buy uh, biz by sell. I think they have like a 20 or 30% close rate. It's not very high. And uh, right. it's because it's because the valuations were done incorrectly, right? When it comes down to right. the brass tack of things, businesses are worth what the market will bear. And it's the job of the advisor to, to know what that range is. Now he can list it for something higher than that, but he should know in the back, you know, in his heart of heart, soul, souls, that it's, that's not where it is, right? And uh, it right. sounds like you guys put the homework in to know, Right. Like, hey, I'll list your business for two and a half million if that's what you want. But I, I would really suggest in three or four months we lower that because it's probably closer to one point five or one point eight is where it sets, you know. Yeah. And, and I should say, too, okay. I mean, oftentimes so, when, when we're marketing a business, we don't necessarily set a list price. Right. right? So I know it's very common to biz by sell, though. though but, um, when we market a company, typically we're, we're dealing with investors, private equity firms strategic buyers who do a lot of deals. So, you know, looking to them to give us a bid, we're not, you know, we're not necessarily asking for a specific price. I mean, I, you know, there have been instances where, I mean, to me, there's no or sophisticated buyer price because they're paying, they're just down. So it's best to let the market set the price, talk to black bids, and then, and then you'll see what, what the it's interesting that you said that because uh, that's one of the number one things I've heard uh, when I talk to businesses who have uh, business owners who've already sold. I asked, like, did you make any mistakes? Yeah, the biggest mistake, usually what, the, not usually, but they're more often than you would expect. The mistake was I told I told the buyer what I what I needed, and we we ended up pretty close to that. And I was like, well, how is that a mistake? I think if I'd kept my mouth shut, he'd offered more, right? Um, there's even one of the one of my favorite podcasters was talking about the company he sold, and he said the biggest mistake he made is they asked him if his business were sell. He said, "Yeah, if I got in this range, I would sell it." And the number, the offer come right in that range. Now he either has to go against his own word and say, "No, I want more," or just accept the range he gave them. And uh, he thinks he left millions on the table because they were in the upper side of his range. But uh, you know, had he not done that, he found out later that you know that same company had bought you know similar assets for more. So let's look at, um, let's kind of just real quick. Let's, let's, we're about 40 minutes into this. Let's make sure everybody knows how to reach out to you. I've got your, uh, your name and your website up on the, uh, up on the screen. So if any of you guys are watching this on live or you're watching this on YouTube, we got the video up. It's, it's available and it's John spelt J O N Taylor T A Y L O R. And it's, uh, at, uh, his business, his website is uh, Stanton Park LLC, S T A N T O N P A R K L L C dot com. That will be in the show notes. 
And uh, let's go ahead and put up your LinkedIn uh, contact information too. So if you're looking for him on LinkedIn, it's uh, John, J-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R Finance. So uh, his LinkedIn URL actually has John Taylor Finance on, on there. And uh, there's quite a few John Taylors. I actually, I was looking for you today because I thought we were connected and everything. And I think, man, I've had about, about like six of them I'm connected to around the world. Like, that's not him. That's not him. <laughs> so uh, I would, uh, the URL is on the screen now. It'll be in the show notes uh, for the show. And uh, for those of you guys that want to reach out to him on LinkedIn and get a connection there. Now, do you do business outside of the, the, the California area or is it just California for now? I do. Yeah, we, we work nationwide. So we present businesses all over the country. Cool. So I didn't want everybody to see like your profile goes like, so they do that to me. Like they'll, they'll look at my profile. Like, well, you're sitting in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I, I got a business down in Dallas. I was like, does it make money? And they're like, yeah, then I want to talk to you about it. Right. <laughs> I, I like money. I like money wherever it's made. And, uh, what, right. you know, if you got a great business, I'd like to hear about it. And, and, uh, one of the things I tell people at times, like, look, I may not be the perfect buyer for you, but as, as the connections I'm making out there, I probably know one that is. So let's go ahead and talk about what you've got going on, you know, and uh, there's been more than once where I've said, hey, you really need to clean this up a bit. Why don't you work with a, you know, somebody that's a strategic advisor in the sell side, work with them. It's going to take you a year or two and come back to the table because what I'm going to offer you right now, you're not going to like. I'm going to offer you between 1X and 3X because your finances are a mess. You're running this thing yourself. I'm going to have to bring a team in and you're close enough to that. P and E level that if you had all that fixed, you'd be in above that three X mark, you know, five X, six X, you know, whatever P, you know, 10 X, you know, uh, depending on the, the PE or uh, the private equity company and or the, you know, strategic. I've asked you a lot of questions, you know, we're, we're at the 40, 40 something minute mark. What, what should I ask? Right. What's the question? Like, man, we should probably talk about this topic. Is there anything on your mind that like you're, you're hoping I get around to? No, it's a good question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, maybe we touched on this before, but I think that the big opportunity with business owners is, you know, probably I think it's in my book, I kind of go through this, but something like, you know, fewer than 95 percent of, uh, you know, 95 percent of businesses are not saleable. Right. So, we're you know, in businesses that um, like private equity or strategic buyer might buy, you know, really only two to three percent of businesses even qualify um for, for that kind of a, a buyer, right? Because usually because they're not it's they're not a big enough company. They're, they're, their sales and profits just aren't high enough. And so I think there's a big opportunity for, for business owners to think about how they can grow and expand their business, right? What, overcoming things like customer concentration, risk factors. You know, I think we, we had touched on that a little bit before, but, um, you know, those are things, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll yeah, put, put a plug in for my book. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I work as I saw there's this, um, huge kind of bottom of the pyramid opportunity for, for business owners um, where, you know, if, if they're focused, you know, if they, um, you know, commit resources, you know, that they can significantly grow their business beyond where they are and maybe, maybe look at doing a, an institutional type deal down the road where they can sell for a much higher multiple rather than, you know, kind of the one to three X multiple range you mentioned, right? Cause that, that's where a lot of small business owners end up because they just, it, it, they haven't put the resources into into making it a, a more size about profitable venture. A lot of business owners don't realize there's actually tiers, right? It, right now, I'm hearing P and E firms are dipping um, down into the um, uh, seller's discretionary earnings and slash EBITDA, EBITDA 
down to almost the 1 million mark, uh, at least the 1.5 million mark. So the, the institutional money, if you're producing a, a million or more in uh, profit or EBITDA, uh, you know, then you might, you could probably pick up some interest from those guys. A lot of guys don't understand, or a lot of business owners don't understand that there's, there's these tiers, right? If you are below that mark, you're probably going to get one X to three X, right? If you, I see a lot of things like, uh, let me think off the top of my head, a pool, pool cleaning service companies, companies that uh, service and uh, maintain swimming pools. A lot of those sell for 1x, right? It's just, well, mm-hmm. you know, and which, you know, I'm looking at them because, like, you know, I get my money back the first year. I'm interested. So, but yeah, we got 1x. But if they can get their EBIT, and maybe it's 3x depending on the, the industry. And if you're in software, that, that this goes out the out the window because uh, if you're a software as a service, there's some crazy multiples that those guys get and stuff. But that one to three X is typically underneath that, that million dollars in EBITDA. Is that still what you're seeing? Yes. I, yeah, I would agree. I would agree yeah. to, to get, to get a, a bigger multiple, you've got to be over a million dollars typically. And usually, you know, t- yeah. 2 million plus. I think if you can get to even through whatever means, if you get through it through mergers and acquisitions, you grow your customer base. Let's just say you hit two million. That multiple can go from that one to three x to easily five six x or above. So you're seeing this. I mean, you've been in this industry for twenty years. I've been in it for two and a half. So does that ring true with you too? Like the multiple is almost twice. Yeah. And then if you can get to the idea, yeah, I, I, I agree. And a lot of people don't like a lot of people will Google like what's it? No, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I agree. I mean, if the company can, can get to that level and, and grow significantly, the, the multiples are yeah, they're they're pretty much double or, or more what uh, they would get for much smaller businesses. A lot of people will Google like what is the EBITDA multiple, and they'll download that chart and it says, well, marketing agencies get twelve x. And, you know, I have to come back to go to get 12x, but the people that are paying 12x for those marketing companies are buying companies that have 10 million or more in EBITDA. So, you know, there's another level. There's these tiers uh, for guys that do acquisition mergers. We kind of look at it as an arbitrage. If I buy one company that's doing under a million, I, met, I merge it with two or three. We get to two or three million. I could buy them for one to three X, sell them for six or seven. And if you want to hang in the longer game, own them for a few more years and get it above 10, I might be able to get industry what they call industry multiples, which might be 10 or 11 for marketing agencies. It's the one I know because we did a roll up last year, but you know, construction materials, I was looking at that industry for a little bit. They're 11 X, but you get 11 X because you're producing 10, 15, 20 million in revenue. I mean, in profits a year. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. Cool. Now, the other thing is a lot of these small to mom and pop shops, they they're, they're hearing that they should do strategic purchases or strategic acquisitions. Like, you know, that's who should be their buyer, but I I think it's a I think a lot of those owners and like I said I'm new in this space, um, but I think a lot of those owners that's not who they want to buy their company right. A lot of these guys that are mom and pop, they're doing less than a million dollars a year in uh, profits and they're wanting to sell. One of their biggest concern is what I call a safe pair of hands that their employees, their staff is going to be left mm-hmm. with somebody. More often than not, you sell a strategic uh, purchase. Um, there's a pretty good chance that they want the customer base, they want the product line, but they don't need your accounting team. They don't need your HR rep. There's going to be some synergies across the two companies and your sides decide to go. So I, I've seen two in the last two years where they got to the finish line, what they thought were going to be a really beautiful exit, and they found out that the acquirer has no interest in any of their employees. 
and then they didn't sell it to it. They actually took a much lower price from somebody else. Oh, wow. Wow. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So I, that's something that, you know, and, and, and in hindsight with him, I was like, that's something you, that he didn't have an advisor. I know the guy. And I was like, why did you go into a, a, a deal without with your level of company? He had 52 employees. With your level of uh, employees, your level of revenue and not have somebody on your side, because that should have been discussed on day one as to what are you going to do with this? Right. They just seen the number. This guy, the company came in, offered them a, a, a substantial like an 11x offer on their uh on their income, on their, uh, their, their, uh, what he called the profit, but it was at EBITDA. Uh, I looked at the, the offer and the LOI and he thought, 11 X, I, I don't have to work no more. I'm, I'm retiring. <laughs> and then he realized that he's the only one getting the check, right? That everybody else is going to get laid off towards the end there. It was just a conversation, you know, that happened after during the due diligence process. He's like, well, do you need my employees? Do you need my HR stuff? And they were like, yeah, we maybe later they kept pushing that off. <laughs> and he finally <laughs> asked the right question. And I was like, so in this case, in this case, you know, I would say if you've got more than a couple dozen uh, or even I don't know what the number is, but if you've got enough money and or a, a sizable enough business, it's not a bad idea to have somebody on your side um, to tell you, wait a second, they're not asking for HR and personnel records because they don't need those. You need to know why they don't need them. Exactly right. And, you know, oftentimes the way that the letter of, letter of intent might be written can be confusing to a seller if he's never read one before. And, yeah, there's nuances to the process they might not pick up. And, they, yeah, they could spend a lot of time doing, going down the road with a buyer that uh, isn't going to buy the company on the on the terms they represented. Right. So, um, you know, you know, I, I've seen um Business owners, yeah, they'll, they'll engage in you know months and months long conversations with a buyer. Nothing ever happens. It's like, well, hey, did, did you ask him this? Did you ask him that? And they're like, well, I didn't. It's like, well, yeah, that's they weren't a serious buyer. So, um, you know that you know things like that. It's um, can be very helpful, like you said, to have an advisor in your corner and help you help you get, get towards the path of, of a sale. Uh, we're at we're at the fifty minute mark now. I keep wanting to man. We could talk forever on this. I, I, most of my just like just like most of my guests, I get on here, we get in a groove, and you know, next thing I know, I look up at the clock. It's like, oh man, we're running out of time. Well, before we go, I mean, what would be three big like if they don't remember anything else from the show? You know, what are two or three big things that people should remember like when they're thinking about buying or selling a company? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think do, good documentation is important, right? I mean, the big difference between selling a company that has good documentation, good financial reporting systems, software, um, th th that's a key piece. Uh, having the right team in place. Can they lead the company post-sale? Um, the business owner, what you know, what is would he consider rolling equity into a new deal or does he want to sell 100%, right? Because you know, th those types of terms dictate what type of transaction you can do. Because if, if the owner wants to sell hundred percent and retire, he may only want to try talking with strategic buyers. Um, you know, most private equity firms want, want you to roll. And then, you know, I think, you know, really getting, taking a hard look at the numbers in, in the valuation is important. Understanding the, the real value of your company and not just, you know, cause you know, I work with sellers all the time and they're saying, Hey, this, here's a deal where somebody got, you know, 20 times EBITDA. How come our offer isn't for 20 times EBITDA? It's like, well, hey, like that, you know, does, is that a real number? Like, who knows? It could be a, a stock deal. It could be based on an earnout. You know, I mean, you don't, you know, th those types of details matter. Is it all cash or not? So, um, 
you know, the, all those things, I mean, really being educated, there, there's a lot to learn about a deal. And I think having an advisor work with you is, is the best way to go for most sellers. So, um, you know, that can certainly, you know, like we talked about, you know, save you time and money and some heartache down the road. I'd almost bet money there was an earnout and some type of performance metrics to get that earnout if you're getting 20 years. Right. right? Um, right. That, yeah. And I say that there, there's some crazy stuff going on in the world, right? Um, how can we support you? How can my listeners, myself, you know, what are you working on right now? What can we do to support you? Is there anything we can do to, 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 to help you out? Sure. So we, look, we're always looking for great clients to work with. So business owners that, that want to sell, that, that have great businesses that are growing and profitable. You know, we're always looking to work with, with folks like that on the sell side, um, on the business valuation side. I mean, we work with all, all kinds of companies. I mean, you know, you name it. So, um, yeah, we're always looking for great companies to work with. So happy to, um, you know, be a resource for, for those types of folks. I'll put one on you. I've got a, uh, an old military buddy. I'm moving to your area. I'm actually moving in, a, in two to three weeks. I'll actually moving about probably an hour north of you. Oh, wow. uh, to Sonoma Valley. So oh, I'm, uh, nice. I'll be up there in the next two to three weeks. I have an old military buddy who's charged me with helping him find a company to buy. So he, he, he's going to be an SBA loan type of situation. But uh, keep the looks out, out for anything that's in that $5 million um, valuation range that's really well sure. run. He's got a, he's a, he's a full-time employee, kind of a VP level at a uh, company that does uh, I won't say too much, but it's contracts with defense departments and uh, municipalities. So he's, he loves his job, but part of his retirement strategy is he wants me to help find something that he could invest in own as an absentee owner and have me help oversee. So keep, and it's in that area. It's in your kind of in your space. So keep your eyes open. You find something like that, reach out to me. Uh, And as we're going through our search, if we find things that just like, just don't fit, but they really probably need some help. I'll actually uh, I'll send some stuff back to your way and that we can help each other out that way. That sounds great. Oh, cool. Well, I appreciate you being on here. And uh, if, you, uh, if you're good, I'm good. We'll wrap this show up. Hang out for a couple seconds afterwards. And uh, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, John. All right. That's the show, guys. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.